For We Teach Me, this is the Masters Series, where industry professionals share their secrets to business success. I'm Sadfil Chanelmish from Written and Recorded. If you're looking for a niche to build your business into, solving one of the world's problems is a great place to start. If you can help people with their health, their heart or their hip pocket, you're sure to find some keen customers. I think to start a business you need to be slightly naive, especially the type of business that we started, like a marketplace, but you also need to be passionate, like not to know maybe 100% the risk you're putting yourself into. So maybe identifying a problem and seeing it a bit in a romantic way of like kind of, yes, I can do this, I can solve it. I think if we knew the difficulties and the pain points, I probably wouldn't have gone there. That's Demi Marco Yanaki, one of the founders at We Teach Me. We'll hear from Demi shortly. First up, Ben Trin, founder of Life Ready Physio and Pilates. Ben wanted to offer people more than a solution for bad backs and sore necks. He wanted to raise the bar to provide the best healthcare possible. With 30 locations, 300 employees and recognition by BRW Fast 100 as one of the fastest growing health businesses in WA, He's done all that and more. Ben says it's important to have a tangible vision of what your world looks like when that problem is solved. The kind of inception of this story was effectively in 2011 when I graduated. I remember kind of graduating uni, feeling a bit disillusioned. And I woke up one day on our last day, we went to the university and there was a talk much like this. And the CEO of the then largest physio company stood on this platform and said, look, these are the rules of our industry. Number one, you can't open a practice when you're a new grad. You don't know anything. That's a silly thing to do. Number two, you need five years experience. You need X, Y, Z. You need to work for basically pitching his company. You're going to come work here at our company. We provide this grad program. And I left afterwards feeling a bit disillusioned. And a month later, I started work. I started work a day after my exams, and I worked three jobs. I worked at a medical center, which was your typical kind of physio practice at the time. And I worked at a typical private practice for the state ballet. And then I also worked for a sporting club for state soccer. The idea was I really wanted a snapshot of what our industry was like. And I couldn't help shake this kind of deep, is this what I, is this what I studied four years for? You know, like four or five years for? There's something not quite right. And I remember one night working late, as a lot of physios do, it was about 8 p.m. And it was dark, and I walk out of my room, and I see my boss in the next room, tears, you know, streaming down his face. And I walk over to him, and I said to him, what's going on? Are you all right? It was just two of us, admin had gone home. He looked up at me, and he just said, Ben, you know, admin are fighting again. Staff were leaving. His IT was crashing. The phone system wasn't working. And his wife just told him that she had cancer an hour before. And he's just gone, and I've had a full day of patients. Can you just take care of that stuff in sort of a desperate plea so I can get home to be with my family? And I just remember going, yeah, of course. You know, you get out of here, I'll lock up, I'll take care of that. I knew a bit about IT, and I just took care of that stuff. And as I stayed back late doing this stuff, something just occurred to me that this guy is sort of the snapshot of the problem that I've been sensing with our industry. The story that was being told in our industry was that the physios that graduated had to do it all, had to be it all. 
And I realized no one person can actually do all those functions well. You know, he was treating patients all day, expected to give time and attention to his staff to manage the culture, and expected to be an accountant and a bookkeeper and a marketing manager and an IT person, whatever, all at the same time. Then he was overwhelmed. And our industry, I realized the overarching story of the physio profession back then was this, was a bunch of fragmented businesses with people that had great intentions, but were incapable of actually running their businesses in alignment with their intentions. There was a misalignment between impact and their intentions. And the only solution at the time was maybe a franchise, but that wasn't quite right for a lot of people. It was too systematic. What about that entrepreneur type who just wants support, who just wants that help? And so that basically was the moment we came up with this idea. What if someone actually just came alongside these guys, 50-50, no funny business, and actually just took care of that stuff so they could focus on what they do best? Rewind the clock, 2011, the idea began. Boy meets problem. I'm inspired by the problem. I'm captured by it. I can't stop thinking about it. I start thinking, what am I going to do? I'm a new grad. That's breaking the rules of the industry. People said, you can't do this. You're a new grad. You can't start a business from scratch. That's a stupid thing to do. And when you challenge people's narratives, they're going to challenge you back with questions. But questions are just opportunities and problems to be solved. So I went out, worked out a way to kick it off. We bought a business that was struggling at the time. The person wanted 60 grand for it. My accountant said, just lay it on the table, offer 10. <laughs> I was like, this is humiliating. I'm gonna go in this meeting and offer this person 10,000 bucks. I was a grad, I said to this experienced, much wiser physio, I said, look, I've got 10 grand. She's like, deal, shook my hand on the spot. I walk out to my car, <laughs> I go, there's this that moment where you're like, what the f did I just do? Like, I just bought a business. Like, what just happened? She's like, oh, I'll work out the legals for you. Thank God for her. Seriously, she did all the legals. I literally went in there expecting no answer. She was not going to say yes. She accepted it, and overnight we had a business. Settlement was like a couple of months later. I called on my mates. Word got out that I was a grad starting a business, and, you know, I started hiring friends. My lecturers were supporting us. It really created a lot of momentum on the ground, and it was really exciting. And by the end of 2011, we had five practices. I have no idea how that happened. The first practice was profitable day one. People just heard. People were supporting us. I took a huge pay cut. Obviously, I earned nothing. So when I say profitable, I just mean not negative balance in the bank account. But I lived at home. I could afford to do that, which is part of the story. My closest friends joined. And over time, it started with eventually five of my closest mates at uni. They kind of said, look, we'll get behind you. Our third practice was when we really trialed this idea of actually me taking the back end, someone doing the front end, and it just started getting momentum from there. I kind of tried to break this up into a few sections. 2012 was a lot of growth scale. We had no idea what was going on, and we really just sat down. We used to meet every week and said, you know, we have to start defining this, whatever this is, <laughs> you know, because I have no idea what this is. Like, why is it working? You know, what's working about this concept? And so they decided to give me Saturdays off. The commitment was I had to spend some time defining our values, our vision, defining our boundaries, defining what it is that made us is working so that as we grow, we wouldn't lose this. And I spent every Saturday morning for a year. And then on Monday, I'd present it to the team, get their feedback, and go back and forth for that time. We held at five clinics for that year. Then in 2013 to 15, we decided that we needed help. 
I formed a board of great people that I knew and they bought in a small stake of our business and we kind of started growing from there. They helped me build systems, they helped me learn not to be a physio and learn to kind of build a professional business that wasn't just friends doing anything that we wanted all day long but actually stay true to who we are and the company just got some traction. Then in 2016, you'll reach that point in your business where my rule of thumb used to be if I can solve the problem by not getting paid, then it's a good enough risk because as long as my staff get paid, I'm happy. But it reaches a certain point of scale where that's probably not a good enough solution for the problems that you might face. So because of that, we decided we we're gonna raise some money. We decided to bring in some great advisors. We ran that process for a year. And since then, the company's continued to grow. I hate saying these kind of broad stories because there was tons of pain points inserted all the way in between there. But I tried to capture what one moment to capture the story would be. I remember being on a plane coming back from Sydney and I built in some routine around making sure that I could take some time off to pause, reflect and stay true to that clarity. And on my way home I was sitting with my wife and we just had our first son, he was only two or three months old. I started just getting into spreadsheets, I felt like I needed to look at some spreadsheets and get to know the numbers in my business because my solution early on in the business was just grow the revenue. You know, if there's a problem, we'll solve it by growing more. You know, if there's an operational problem, we'll solve it by growing more. And I just felt like this isn't working for me anymore. I have no visibility. I don't know anything about my business. And after about two or three days, it became sort of apparent to me that we were effectively insolvent, that we had grown too fast. And I remember just looking at my spreadsheet, just going, this is not right nearly insolvent, like borderline insolvent, like this business could collapse if I didn't do anything about it. And there was this sinking gut feeling where I realised, hey, I just convinced my wife to leave her job, <laughs> to have a baby. Well, I didn't convince she wanted a baby, but you know, she left her job having a baby. We just bought a house, we settled in. What the heck do I do in this moment? And what do I do with my staff? And I realised running the numbers, I probably had to fire three or four people in order to keep the company alive or not pay myself anything for an indefinite period of time. And I just resolved in myself I couldn't fire anyone for my stuff up. And so I went home this one evening. I remember it so vividly. Linda was just holding our baby and I just had to get it off my chest. And I just said to her, look, babe, I've stuffed up. We're basically either going to not pay ourselves or get rid of some employees and I'm not gonna do that. So we're not gonna have any income for a sort of indefinite period of time until I can save the business. And I just remember her leaving the room, coming back about five minutes later, looking me in the eyes and just saying, I forgive you, go get on with it. If you lose everything, you'll always have me and you'll always have each other. Go on and save the business. And I remember that season, that was six months, it took six months to the dot, we had $300 left in our bank when the accountant was like, hey, we can pay you again. I'm like, yes, you know, it's just how it is. And two things, that's the journey. <laughs> you know, there'll be moments where you question, why did I do this? And no one knows those moments. Only my wife, thank God for her, she's far too good for me. There's my wife there by my side. She had every right to walk out and say that I'd totally stuffed her, but she didn't. She showed me grace and showed me love. And in that moment, she gave me the strength to keep going on. And there's so many lessons out of that, you know, but I wanted to share that because I didn't want it to just be, oh, here's this guy, I had an idea, found a problem. But no, the problem, and the company's massive, that's not the story. The story is 
This is a problem that has captured my very soul. I'm passionate about it. I believe in it. Now, I'll suffer for it, even if I'm alone. I'll be resilient. I'll push through the pain. I'll push through that stuff. If you're just catching up, solving a problem, you're just doing charity. How are you going to make a living out of that problem? And I want to be clear on this. I'm very passionate about B Corp. One of our board members is one of the few B Corp ASX companies. And these are my views on economics. But not every problem you can make a commodity out of. But that's all right. If you can, great. Then how do you plug in that social impact into the business? We have a social impact arm called Life Ready Open House, which is something deeply passionate to Jess and I, which is basically complementary physio care for immigrants, for people who can't afford it. How are you going to make money off that? You can't charge a poor person for something that they need. But what we can do is tap into the story that our physios tell about themselves. When we did this survey of who would volunteer, 84% of our staff said they would volunteer extra hours to help someone, which told me, actually, we need this in our story because it aligns with their personal direction. And that's a very exciting piece of the puzzle. We use something called the Lean Canvas to work out how to actually monetize this and who to work with. It's from Eric Rice. You can just Google it online. And how it all kind of fits together, at the end of the day, is hope. There's two personality types of entrepreneurs I've found. If you're a very bottom-up, details person, you're going to run a perfect business, but it'll be one business. So the way Jess and I, my business partner, say it is if she was on her own, she'd run one perfect physio clinic. Like, it would be perfect. If it was just me, I'd run 100 poorly run physio practices. Neither of them is what either of us want. But together, we can actually build something special. We'll have 50 clinics that are well run, you know, in the middle. But you need that top line, which is the vision and the hope. So I call it hope because every story has to have hope. Hope is what gives suffering meaning. One of my favorite books is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And he talks about surviving in the prison camps. And he says, at the end of the day, it was actually people whose stories were something that the prison camp couldn't take away from them. For example, you know, one of his friends he uses is a story about a guy that believed the war was ending on a certain date. That date came and went, and he couldn't make it anymore. He couldn't keep going. But for Victor Frankl, he has looked inwardly of himself, and he had this vision of one day him teaching about this experience in Auschwitz. And nothing they did to him there could take away. In fact, it actually contributed to that vision because it was more experiences for him to share. You will need this hope and this vision when you start pursuing your problem because you'll need resilience, you'll need grit. It'll give meaning to those moments where you feel like giving up. And so I'd encourage you how it pieces together is you've got your vision, your passion, your strengths. Your mission then comes out with your why, which is you should watch Simon Sinek's why if you haven't already on the TED. And how those all connect with society is the vision. It's a tangible, descriptive picture of what the world looks like when your problem is solved. And it should be measurable, it should be inspiring, and it should be something that gets you out of bed every day that you can actually say, when someone says, what does the world look like when you've achieved your goal? What does success look like tangibly? And it doesn't have to be en masse. It can be X, Y, Z person impacted, whatever it might be, but it has to be tangible and measurable. And this hope is what will get you through. Thanks. So, so many lessons learnt for Ben, pushing through his pain points and learning to be resilient. He brought the company back from the brink of insolvency. Thanks, Ben. We'll meet Demi Markayanaki, one of the founders at We Teach Me, right after these messages.
Masters series is presented by We Teach Me. Whether you want to improve your photography, taste whiskey, or paint a teapot, We Teach Me has a class to build your soft skills and have fun. Learn what makes your heart beat at weteachme.com. This podcast is produced by Written and Recorded. A podcast is an intimate medium where you can share your business story without anyone knowing that you're blushing. Listen to more tales at writtenandrecorded.com. And now, back to the podcast. Thanks, Ad Guy. Demi Marco Yanaki is one of the founders at We Teach Me. Demi is a self-taught salesperson and has twice been recognised in Shoestring Media Group's top 50 Australian female entrepreneurs under 40. In this fireside chat with her colleague Wayne Lewis, Demi says the gut feeling of questioning your own business is not a good thing. So I'm originally from Greece, so you can hear a strong accent. So I came here to do a master's degree in Melbourne University. And after I finished the master's degree, I started working as a freelance writer. I worked as a journalist for a newspaper, and I found it quite boring. So not as challenging as I wanted it to be. And then I decided that maybe I should start this business. At that time, it sounded like a great idea. I think to start a business, you need to be slightly naive, especially the type of business that we started, like a marketplace. But you also need to be passionate, like not to know maybe 100% the risk you're putting yourself into. So maybe identifying a problem and seeing it a bit in a romantic way of like, kind of, yes, I can do this, I can solve it. I'm getting there is the best way to go, I would say. I don't know if this is some kind of good advice, but it's definitely how you usually start a business. I think if we knew the difficulties and the pain points, I probably wouldn't have gone there. So I would say that the first thing that we did was we started looking for ideas that I would feel passionate for. I met Kim, so Kim is my business partner. I knew Kim like three years before that, so it was one of my friends from uni, and he was working in a law firm, and he was like slightly not as passionate, I guess, about law, so we both were like, okay, let's do something to be having fun together, like we did at uni, and we started a business. So part of it was obviously identifying a problem and trying to find a solution to it. So because we had the idea, but we didn't exactly pinpoint the problem, we failed straight away. So one of the first things that we did was we went there and we tried to connect people that are passionate for teaching with people who are passionate for learning. The vision is still there, it's the same thing, but this time we're actually solving a heap load of problems that they're hiding behind us. This. So, One of the things that we did wrong starting was we thought we knew what people wanted. So we built a platform, we said everyone, just list your classes here, and then we tried to find people to attend the classes. And we couldn't. So we called all our friends and we're like, do you want to do a class? Everyone come into a class. So eventually we tried to like make money out of it and it didn't work. That was a good lesson for us. We didn't get to achieve anything, and that was like maybe the first like five, six months. And 
we said, let's go back into the drawing board and try and find a solution for how to make this work. So we interviewed about 100 people who were running classes, and we just listened. So one of the main things that I would suggest that someone that wants to start a business to do is to listen. So listen, identify what are the actual problems that people are having, whether they are the people that you're trying to service or your customers, the people you're trying to target, and understand what are the pain points for them and draw on their feedback and create the solution that will make sure that we solve all these issues that they're having. And that's what we did. And then that was the first time I actually felt that I was actually solving a problem because people were willing to give me money for the solution that I had. Up until then, every time I was trying to sell something or invite people to participate in the class or like list on with it, there was this feeling that I was like, why would they want to do this? And I think just that gut feeling of questioning your own business is not a good thing. The moment that you feel that you're proud of what you have in front of you, the moment that you feel that here it is, I have built something, and someone is willing to say, oh my God, this is actually really helpful to what I'm trying to achieve, and I'm willing to pay for it, then you just have the beginning of a business. In terms of the skill sets and the partners with Kim, how did you guys then realize that, you know, okay, we need to work on the next phase? How did you divide up your skill sets with the other founders? The resources were very limited. It was just uh, four of us at that point, and we did everything. We did talking to clients, onboarding them. I remember like nights that we would spend onboarding over 60 classes with images, with descriptions, with everything, sitting late at night and saying, how many have you done? I've done five. We're never going to finish this. And then like waking up the next morning and talking to more people and doing customer support. And Kim like saying to me, I'm not really good at customer support. I was like, do you know anyone else that could do customer support? And I was, he was like, I can't deal with people that have issues. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. He's got his own, right? Life is hard. I know now it sounds funny, but at that point, we're really tired. So, so tired. And then I was thinking, you know, one day we won't be this tired anymore. This is not going to happen. <laughs> You're always going to be tired. So, but we're just with different issues. So I think at that point we're really tired with doing everything and we're looking for a way out. We felt that we're constantly underwater trying to like get up the top and like draw breath. And it was really, really tough, but we kept going. And I think we kept going because first, we saw that it was working. So that kept us quite passionate to just keep going, keep going and pushing through it. Second, we did this, which was quite risky, but we said we're all going to leave our side jobs because we kept doing something because we weren't getting paid for a year. So we all said, that's it, we're gonna go full time onto this. And if it doesn't work, we're out. 
So we had to give it all. Otherwise, all this time, all this effort that we had spent would be for nothing, or that's what we were thinking at that time. How did you then justify that to, you know, were the people in your life at the time? I think we listened to Kim before, and he's obviously got family members that are thinking, are you doing the right thing? Were you faced with any of these dilemmas like, okay, my family are thinking this is way too risky? Yeah. So my parents didn't know what I was doing for the first maybe three years after like, I finished university. My parents are quite traditional, they're great people. They are both professionals, they have nothing to do with business. So I would go back and I'd be like, well, we have a platform that is online and we're trying to connect people that would like to teach with people that would like to learn. They would be like, where are you working from? I'd be like, well, we work from a library in the city. <laughs> and they'd be like, okay, so how much money are you making? We're not making any money. So they kind of like thought I had gone crazy. Actually, it was the first time they visited after like four years of me being in Australia, they came to see if I'm actually okay or if I'm, I've gone completely mental. And then they decided, you know, it's your life. We let you make your own mistakes. Like the first time they realized what I was doing was when I won one of these awards of like being an entrepreneur amongst like top female entrepreneurs. And then the Greek media picked it up and I ended up being in a local newspaper, and then my parents were like, oh, <laughs> now it okay, makes sense. this is what she's doing. <laughs> up until then, it was really hard for me to explain because technologically, they're not extremely advanced, but also it was just really hard at that point to, for them to understand. So really hard for that. And then I think amongst us, we were just saying whoever gets to the bottom first in terms of money in their bank account will have to support the other people. So <laughs> it was just like, okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going a little bit of money more. Like, let's make sure that everyone stays, you know, at the point where they are okay. And obviously, we wanted to prioritize the people that we knew they had a family. They were like a little bit more vulnerable. And we teach me, we're quite a diverse company. I'd like to say that we are. We can celebrate that. And obviously, we're almost 50-50, I think, male to female employees in a tech company. So can you talk about the early stages? Obviously, you were the only female employee and what your experiences were as a female entrepreneur. Yeah, so this is an interesting thing. And I don't have any horror stories on my side. I've been respected by the people that I've been dealing with. And I think that happens maybe because I'm quite assertive. Maybe that's the Greek background or something like that. Like I tend to be, I know about what I'm talking about. If I don't know what I'm talking about, then I try to be quiet and listen or learn. I guess like I've been approached quite a lot by girls that they're not sure about what they're doing or they feel that they won't be taken seriously. And I tend to say to them that you just need to push through. We tend to be emotional, but we also tend to be having other qualities. For example, in my company, it's like Kim, Teng, and myself are currently the founders. And sometimes I just go around and I say, hey, guys, like, I think you should change that perspective and see it from a different point of view. And I think it doesn't really matter who you are, the country you're coming from, if you're a girl or a guy or anything like this. I think what matters is what you bring into the company, your perspective and 
everything is valuable, every opinion is valuable. And I think a lesson that I've learned is it doesn't matter who you are, running a business will toughen you up. Sometimes I'll get really upset. Kim would be able to tell you on the first, like these phone calls trying to sell people. I cried a lot, like, cause people would reject me. They would be like, oh, who are you? Like you have an accent, I don't know, whatever. And I would cry a lot and I would be very upset, but eventually I would say, what do I have to lose? Like at the end of the day, I'm here, I'm trying to do something good. There's nothing to lose, I'll push through it, I'll toughen up. And the more tough you become, the harder it is for things like that to get through to you. You have bigger expectations of yourself. You're willing to help more people like you have been helped before, I guess. And I think it's a great lesson for everyone to embrace who they are, whether that is gender or nationality or whatever, because that's what makes them special. And it's a very, very unique perspective to bring into a business. Would you say, obviously your staff members, are they the proudest moment of your entrepreneurial background or career so far? What would you say is that proudest moment of yours? That's a hard question. I don't really know. I get a lot of fulfillment by meeting the people that we service. I get extremely excited if I go somewhere and people would seem to know what I'm doing. So like I'll go to a, a party and someone would be, what are you doing for a living? And then I'll try to explain and I'll be like, oh, we're doing, they'll be like, this sounds like we teach me. And I'll be like, we are we teach me. I am we teach me. You know, it's just like that heartbeat that you get, like people know what I'm doing. People know who we are. But again, I think like everything that I do, I see it from a humble point of view, if you can say. I don't feel important enough. I feel that I can help people talking from experience, but at the same time, I always see that there is another, something else to conquer, someone else to help, another issue to solve. So I'm really proud of the team that I have around me. I'm really proud of my business partners. I'm really proud from what we've built today and from the knowledge that I've acquired. But I feel like we're still early on this journey and there's so much more to conquer. Excellent. So, guys, thank you very much. Demi, Marco, Janaki of We Teach Me. Can we have a round of applause? And a key takeaway there from Demi, it's important to remember that different perspectives matter. Whether you're female, male, have an accent or not, everyone has something of value to bring to business. Thanks, Demi, and thanks, Ben, as well. Next time on Master's Series, The Art of Copywriting and the Power of Words, we'll get some text tips to help your business and brand to express themselves and connect with your customers. Until then, I'm Sadhvi Shenalmish from Written and Recorded, and for We Teach Me, this is the Master's Series. <laughs>